Episode 137 of the Brian Oak Show. Irie. Irie, Irie, man. You know, there's a, a lot of people know Rocksteady. They know reggae music in particular. Ska, one of its offshoots. But the groovy, groovy dub extension of reggae is not something everyone goes very deep on. Say you're Lee Scratch Perry's, or in this case, a very white duo out of Washington, D.C., Thievery <laughs> Corporation, who seem to come up with a different you know theme every record they put out. And I absolutely love their production. If you like to hang around and listen to headphones on a Sunday afternoon, wink, wink, that is a band <laughs> that you should absolutely be into. My name is Brian Oak. I am joined by friend, co-business owner sponsor of the brian oak show sean bernard hi sean how are you i am fantastic because the freaking weather's like unbelievable i i stopped wearing long underwear you wear long underwear oh during the winter do you really absolutely now what's interesting is i am a proponent of the commando lifestyle you are i don't like to wear underwear ever haven't as a grown man during decent weather in a very very Almost embarrassingly long time. Saved me a lot of money on the underwear budget, though. However, I do actually go rather deep and spend a lot of money on long underwear because on those winters where it gets really cold, where it's 20 below outside and you're getting in your vehicle at 5 a.m., you want to make sure everything's well insulated. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Is that too much? Did I share too much to start the show? Probably. I've got a pretty vivid imagination. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's the thing. What are you doing later? You... (laughs) <laughs> this, unfortunately, <laughs> this. Um, but you got to be careful. Like you have to know the right day to stop wearing long underwear. Otherwise, things get... Uh, my favorite descriptor is swampy. Oh. How's yeah, your imagination know. now? I just, I'm glad I don't have to eat anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> is life treating you all right? It is. It's all right. I mean, I, seriously, I'm one of these people that I, I get kind of in the winter blues a little bit. And when it gets even this warm, I'm like... Oh, my God. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Now, I'm not one of those weirdos who's like, oh, man, shorts and flip-flops. Here no, we go. It's no. 44 degrees. I'm Let's do this. Knock it off. All right. They, they, like Just one step at a time, baby. But, like, I'm wearing a lighter jacket, no long underwear. Let's go ahead and, you know, layering, right? Like, yeah. Let's just take our steps through the process. Slowly but surely, just keep taking it off. That's it, what I say. It, Settle down. It is lovely here in the Twin Cities right now. The Smart Start <laughs> MN studio where we record is located very near 48th in Chicago, just south of the Parkway Theater. Oh, and it's scenic and it's lovely. And this show really is all about telling the stories of the place that we live in. And native Minneapolitan and longtime musical stalwart of this fine city we live in is going to be our guest today, Tony Oliveri. I can't wait to talk to him because, you know, back in the day I talked to him quite a bit, but then all of a sudden life happens and you're like, oh, we haven't really had a conversation in more than a decade. And so it's it's high time that we rectified that and we're going to because our paths have crossed several times, including a couple times he's not even aware of way back in the day. And we'll get to that very shortly. Uh, When it comes to our first song today, I don't really have a reason that I wanted to play it other than it had a loud guitar and I really like this song. Is that cool with you? Let's do it. All right. Here's a band called The Etz, Crown of Age, The Brian Oak Show. (laughs) 
band out of Los Angeles, a trio where everybody in the band, in addition to being great players, great singers, great songwriters, they all have a fun nickname. And I have wanted my entire life to have a fun nickname and never really got one. I tried to start a couple of my own. I thought popcorn would be a good nickname for a while. <laughs> nobody, nobody bit on that one. Wasn't that one of Biden's buddies or was that Pop-Tart? I... <laughs> Biden I had a buddy that he talked about all the time, like... You know, me and so-and-so and popcorn. I thought, and... I thought that was that guy who, like, kept track of all the parties he went to who was up for a Supreme Court nomination. Didn't he keep a calendar? Like, <laughs> I wrote down every oh, yeah, party yeah, yeah. I Kavanaugh. went to. Kavanaugh, that Kavanaugh. That's, right. that's who you're okay. thinking of. All right. And it wasn't popcorn. It was like being Pico or Pup-Pup or whatever. <laughs> no, that was... Flip-flip. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, everybody in the band has a fun name, like lead singer Lindsay Coco Hames. Then there's Maria Pony Silver. Pony spelled P-O-N-I, which is badass. And then Jeremy Cohen Jem is what they call him. Man, Coco Pony and Jem are coming over tonight. They're going to play in the basement. You want to come over? Hell yes, I want to come over. Popcorn coming? You know it. <laughs> you know what you know that what? guy's it like? Was, it, was, uh, it was actually, it was Biden and it was Corn Pop. Corn Bi- Pop? Biden did have a friend named Corn Pop. I'll look it up, and later we can discuss. What What kind of nickname is... Let's see, but at least... Well, he was trying to show how diverse he was, and that I had all these friends of different cultures, and he's like going through their names. You and know, what culture You know, is- Mickey and Skinny and Corn Pop. What, and- <laughs> what culture is Corn Pop? I don't know. It was an African-American general- gentleman that... I see. They, friend- they called him Corn Pop, and he talked about... Growing up with Corn Pop, I'm like, you sure he was cool with that, man? This is I, this is generating more questions than answers. That's true. It is the Brian Oak Show podcast, episode 137. Hard though that may be to believe. Made possible by Smart Start MN. Smart Start MN, Minnesota's original ignition interlock company. You lose your ability to drive due to a DWI, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be a severe pain in the behind. And it's going to seem like an uphill battle to get back into your vehicle, but it can be easier and cost less than you otherwise think it might. These are the people that helped create Minnesota's original ignition interlock system. They worked with the legislature. They founded the the architecture, the structure that made this possible. And as we know on this show, we're very provincial. They're one of us. They are part of this community. And that's a big part of what we do here on the podcast. And they've been with us since before we recorded a single episode. And they can help you get back in your vehicle sooner than you otherwise might. And like us, they can't wait to see live shows. Oh. If, if you or anyone you know uh, gets a DUI, they're going to lose their license right away. But you yep. can get... A discount, just go to smartstartmn.com slash the Brian Oak Show. They'll give you 20% off the installation of the ignition interlock. Do you remember back in the before times when it was so easy to take things for granted and you're like, yeah, I'd love to go out tonight, but I get up in the morning know, and also totally. blah, blah. Ed from Smart Start invited me to a show and I didn't blow it off per se, but I was like, oh, I got a bunch I got to do tomorrow and I don't really know if a show is a good idea. One of the last shows... I didn't go to that I should have gone to was with Ed from Smart Start. Oh, I know. And I'm sorry. Yourself. I promise you, when we get past this, I will go with you to that show should they come back or pick them. I'll, I'll go see anything at this point. Well, not anything, but. I don't know. I'd go see a couple of guys doing skiffle down on the corner at like actually maybe Nickel I would. 26. Maybe I would. I'll just kind of ramp my way up to good shows. Throw a couple coins in the tambourine case. Man, at this point, you know just about it. anything. Today's guest is a young man by the name of Tony Oliveri. Now, Tony was born and raised in Minneapolis. He is without question one of us. In fact, he's more one of us than I am because I was born in a different state. Although I did live here since I was two. Yeah, you're a. Minnesota. Does that make me a fraud? 
You're a Minnesotan. I don't know. Am I? Yeah. I was born somewhere else. Yeah, but you got here soon enough, before kindergarten. See, the people that come after kindergarten, they're still outsiders. See, I always wondered where the line was. So after kindergarten, yeah. yep. you're always going to be an outsider. Yep, but Even then if you, you spent 50 years here, you're you still an outsider. You won't be invited to that cabin trip with the high school buddies. That's yeah. what happens to p- people that are pre-kindergarten, you know. Now, I know Tony from his time in Like Hell. I was only recently informed that he was in a band that I went to see at the old Uptown Bar Every single time oh, they play, the uptown man, man I love that place. I'm telling you that Euros platter breakfast. I think about it with increasing regularity. In fact, I don't. I'm I'm like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, making the Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes. When I think about that Euros platter, anyway, he used to be in the band Cows, and he knew he wanted to be a musician after his very first Kiss concert. Started playing drums <laughs> in various bands throughout high school, and then he went to college. Took off from Madison, Wisconsin, which I understand is not much of a party school. So he probably focused largely on his studies while he was there. But then after he graduated, came back and joined the band Cows, who were one. Of the most authentic and terrifying local live bands. As I've said many times on the show, the reason that I love something is when I believe it. And I believed that I was in mortal danger every time I went to see cows <laughs> at Uptown. I, you never knew. I mean, I remember Shannon coming out there with a mustache, fake mustache drawn on and marker on his face, a cowboy hat, bikini underwear, and a weird see-through cowboy apron and uh, cowboy boots. And um, leaning out in the crowd, and there was sometimes a little punchy slappy back and forth when i went to see that band it was not always safe um but then would go on to play with like hell which is where i got to know tony all very very well and he's played and toured with so many bands that i don't even want to go through the list right now we'll get into it we should start by doing this hello tony how are you hey brian how you doing man good to see your face man (laughs) yeah likewise it's been a minute so let's go back real quick just for people who are not familiar with the oliveri legacy oliveri oliveri no, Oliveri, you're saying it perfect. Oliveri, all right, very good. Who are not familiar, born and raised in Minneapolis, and so you go away to college, but I imagine that you would touch the drums before you left for school, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I Actually, I, my parents were musicians. My that's my dad was a piano player. My mom actually was a city slicker in Spike Jones's band back in the day. What? And uh, yeah, she used to wear a silver sequin gown and smoke a cigar and, and play a kazoo, and uh, so she toured with him for a little bit. So we kind of had a, a musical family, and there's a lot of music going on uh, around the house. And so, did you a, feel an? I mean, because that's that's no small legacy right there. Did you feel an obligation to get into music? Was there pressure to be cool? Where you're like, shit, I always wanted to be an accountant, but now I guess I have to play drums. No, I that no, it was pretty much just part of my being, you know, being around. Like they would have people come and doing rehearsals all the time. You know, like my dad played with the Mills Brothers and Ethel Merman. rehearsing at the house or whatever and it was just kind of weird i'm sorry ethel merman was at your house (laughs) yeah and so no for real though for real yeah i wasn't there for that my brother nick uh was the one who heard her i was i can't remember where i was for that one but right but yeah he's tons of you know lonnie anderson well she wasn't she was more wkrp in cincinnati but they're just a lot of the musicians and musician parties and stuff like that brian held her picture up with one hand for years in high school I laminated and hung it in the shower, bro. Oh, okay. Apparently, Sorry. she held me when I was a little baby at a New Year's party at our house, and I, unfortunately, there weren't any cameras because I'd like to have a picture of that. <laughs> but back when she was a brunette, and uh, Lonnie Anderson held me as a baby when I was a little baby. Apparently, my as, none of this it. is in your bio. None of the good stuff is in your bio. I'm so glad <laughs> we're sitting here talking right now. So, I mean, you grew up in entertainment. 
Without a doubt. Yeah. It was, you know, very, very, very lucky to have my dad and around all day. And then he would just go out and play at night. His his first gig was, he was a music director, well, not first gig, but first gig while I was alive was he was a uh, music director at old Edgewater Inn, to Edgewater 8, which was up in, in uh, Northeast Minneapolis and uh, off Lowry. And it was like a little supper club and people would drive their uh, uh, houseboats or whatever up to it. And so right. some of my earliest memories are going and seeing the Edgewater 8 play and and they'd had there'd be a band playing live, and he was the music director for that. So yeah, so it was definitely in my blood, and but lucky to have those guys around, you know, during the day. And and then you know, just as the years went on, I just you know, I had a little drum set at home. I remember I can't, can't remember who it was, someone in Chicago. My parents said I went behind a drum set and I played it better than the guy that was had it. You know, just, <laughs> just for a little kid, which was kind of cool. Do you have any inkling as to why drums more than say guitar or saxophone or anything else that might have been around you when you were growing up? I, I don't know. With me, it was just it just came naturally. You know, I never really had lessons, and it's pretty obvious because I'm not I'm a good cre- <laughs> a good. Can you swear or no swearing? Of you course, swear. you can swear. I, I'm pretty good shitty drummer, and right. so and I mean I'm not gonna pretend to be like some heavyweight like there are in town and around the world and stuff like that but kind of what my whole theory in playing the drums was like almost an an accompanist in a weird way and like and not just you know whacking off and just showing my chops all the time my thing is about you know let the let the guys out front do their thing keep the groove get the booty shaking so to speak or whatever and to me the drums and the bass like so i don't mind if there's a flourish here and there but let's be very clear that almost nobody unless you have a degree in music theory almost nobody wants to hear a drum solo or a bass solo right like for me the prime example is acdc rock solid rhythm section the bedrock of that band so you can let all the other flowery people up front do their dancing and prancing but without them that band doesn't happen. So that approach to to the rhythm section, I, I totally appreciate. Right on, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's like, I just try to keep it simple and sweet, you know, and then that way whenever you do something kind of half flashy, it bumps, it's like, you know, comes out a little bit more or whatever. Did you ever twirl your drumsticks? No, that's one thing, you know, I, I never really did that. And I, I, I kind of, I'm going to be honest, I've been kind of, because my son Luca is playing the drums now uh-huh. and he's doing it. And I, it's like, I, I kind of pretend to do it. I, I don't do it the way they do it. I do it between my fingers, which is more of an, an ex, rudiment exercise to uh-huh. get your, you know, rudiments going. But, uh, uh, yeah, as far as doing it showtime wise, no, I, I, <laughs> it's, it's cool as hell though. I mean, I, I, it's when you see drummers do that, it's just like, you know, how do you do that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> not, but I could never even spin a damn basketball. I tried about a hundred times and I just could not. What about a football? You know where you get it going? Oh no, I can't do that either. On the finger? No. Nope. Softball? Nope. Let's move on. Grapefruit? Nope. Okay. Very good. So you are Pink a drummer. <laughs> you go to college. What do you, I mean, so you know that you love music. You've grown up around entertainment your whole life. What is it you're going to college for when you go to Madison? Well, okay, well, before before Madison, I started playing in a high school band. And what so was that, it called? And so that first band was called the Debts. Uh, and then, then after that, Debts turned into Prenatal Kick. <laughs> and uh, so we, we played, and so that was like, you know, right when I discovered punk rock and heard the Clash, Green Record, Sex Pistols, Bollocks, and uh, and The Cure, Boys Don't Cry, oh, and those three records went boom, boom, boom. I was introduced to, and uh, and uh, it was just really cool. And then so like we went to high school, you know, like I said earlier when we, before this started with like Dave Burner and his first band was called The Shits, and so we would shit, <laughs> shits and debts. We like we just would shit, shits and debts, shits, debts, jam, shits, debts, and we and then we'd go to one of our houses and we just both bands would play back and forth. 
And I also went to high school with Tommy Stinson. And, right. and it was just like, I'm at West High at the time in 1981, I guess it was. And Tommy would be coming into school on a Friday and he would just be like, and we'd be talking and he goes, oh man, I played the entry last night. I'm so tired. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, I, didn't th- I really didn't know what the entry was. I mean, I, I knew, you know, whatever, but it hadn't, I wasn't cool enough to, to be able to go to clubs yet. And I didn't have a fake ID or anything. And so, but I How was, did he get in? Because he wasn't old enough to be in clubs either. Well, at that, from what I understand, there's a lot of times where he would, he would be forced to stay downstairs and when he first started and, really? and he wasn't too happy about it. And, and then just allowed to come up and play with yeah, the replacements and then had to go exactly. back downstairs. Right. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And, and so that was, you know, that was fun playing, you know, in high school and with those guys. So that was really, you know, then, then the shits went on to, to kind of turn into loud, fast rules and, uh, and then watching, you know, well, Perner was the first drummer. So I think he played drums with, and I was a carryout at Lens on Lake Street with Danny Murphy and Carl <laughs> before they met Dave. Right. And uh, so the first time I ever saw those guys, they played at, uh, at uh, I guess it was at Monique Baumuel's house. It was like a house party. And I go, God, that's pretty good. The next time I saw him, Dave came out and Pat Morley, who was the original drummer for uh, for Loud Fast, and he was just an amazing drummer. And that, so when I watched those guys, that's when I knew, I go, these guys are going to become huge. And I've got to keep playing. And so my friend Tom Duclos and I went to uh, Madison together and we started a band called Eat a Monkey. And that's when we started. <laughs> and, and I that, love that, the names. <laughs> that, that was the band that played through college and then and then graduated from Madison and then and then came back. But to answer, and I'm going a full circle here, the question was, what did I want to study in Madison? And I, I didn't know what I wanted to really do at the time because I was really young. I was like 17 when I was in Madison and what do you want to be for, what are you going to do for your living? You know, I'm going to be a businessman. You know, I, I, didn't, know, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ended up taking every single introductory level course that they had, you know, and at the time I did drink and Matt, you're right. Madison is definitely, because the drinking age was 18 at the time. Mm. And so, so, but anyways, it was just, you know, got to the point where, you know, I was just sitting there going, okay, one, I got two years under my belt. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? I got to graduate. I don't want, have this turn into a 10 year deal. So I looked at what I was doing best in and I was doing best in history and I was doing best in uh, French. And uh, so what I did is, and I spent my junior year of college, I lived with a French family in France at Aix-en-Provence. Wow. And uh, what part of France is that? That's uh, in, it's just, it's on the Midi. It's just uh, North of Marseille. Okay. And uh, um, so I went to school there and so that went and took just history and French level classes. So I was able to literally double stuff up and, and be able to graduate on time and then came back to Madison and then just finished up growing up held by Lonnie Anderson as an infant studying abroad in France and then back to this city to before like hell with all of its legendary trappings would come to pass you played with cows and we're going to talk about that transition but first we've gone long enough into this show without hearing any music I want to play a song by cows and I want you to tell me about this song and and why very briefly, because we'll talk more about it on the far side, but why do you think, because I have my own reasons why I think they mattered, why do you think cows mattered? Well, that's a good question. Uh, just because we, at the time, just didn't give a shit, and <laughs> just we basically were just trailblazing and pioneering, doing our own thing. We weren't trying to be, you know, that a band, you know, with whatever, you know, some metal band or clown makeup doing, you know, whatever. It was just like <laughs> we, we just were, you know, basically fuck you were the cows 
And, uh, and it was just, that's, I mean, when I saw him the first time, it was the same way, you know? So yeah, I think that's pretty much it. We're talking to Tony Oliveri, formerly of the Cows, also of Like Hell, lots of different rock and roll excursions. I told you at the very top of the show, or I mentioned at the top of the show, that I was routinely frightened when I was at Cows shows, and that was that's a good thing. That that to me is a positive experience. When you're young and you're going to see music, I never once felt like I was there was like that anything was fraudulent, right? I never I never once felt like anybody was half-assing it. Now, I, there were times that I saw Cows that I felt like the band wasn't happy with its own performance. Like, they, I could tell there was inner <laughs> frustration among the members that it wasn't quite reaching this sort of raw, Gigi Allen-esque edge that they, they kept trying to achieve. <laughs> but I never once felt like this band wasn't trying to do everything in its power to be unlike... Again, it's not the right way to describe it. I can't find the right words because it's not like being weird just for the sake of being weird. This band didn't give a shit about what you thought, and it was going to do the thing that it wanted to do, and there's something true about that level of artistry. That was great about that particular time period, though. There were some punk bands bands that you knew never they were never going to make it, but they were having so much fucking fun, and they did not give a shit if some of the people in the audience weren't weren't down with it. You know? And so, Tony, that, that you said is the first recording you ever played on? 
Uh, or yeah, the first that, recording by AMREP. Nope, that actually is my first, I think, yeah, I guess it was not, the first one official one that came out. I think we, Eat a Monkey ended up winning Battle of the Bands <laughs> at First Avenue and they nice. gave us some free uh, studio time. But I don't think anything obviously came of that. But this was... Uh, eat a monkey. Is that all one word? Eat a monkey. All one word. All exactly. Right, cool. Cool, gotcha. right. <laughs> kind of like lake hell, all one word. I got you, it. You can tell I'm into like one words. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so uh, Cow is Almost a God. That was on, on Dope Guns and Fucking in the Streets, Volume 3. Uh, <laughs> so at the time, we were on the uh, uh, Treehouse label, Mark Treehouse. So the first record that I'm not on, uh, that Saunders Ripmanis, the original drummer's on, is... Uh, uh, Taint Pleur was Taint Unum. And so that album came out, and then uh, the Chow single came out on Treehouse, and we started touring. And uh, we did a tour with Bongwater, three shows, and then... Uh, and then Bongwater is Wayne Kramer, right? Yep, exactly. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. And then Dave Dave Lick and Dave Rick or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, then we came back, and things just, you know, we weren't driving with Treehouse, and uh, so Tom Hazelmeyer lived across the street from Kevin Ripmanis, the bass player, and uh, became a fan and, and start, had AMREP going at the time. And so he, uh, he asked if we would wanted to do the single uh, and then for his Dope Guns and Fucking in the Streets, Volume 3. And that was almost a god, that song. Well, which is crazy. I mean, like, so when you think about guys like Hazelmeyer, who, you know, is still a crazy, creative, wonderful, mad genius, you know, Cows was chaos. Cows was a known quantity, but at the same time, an unknown quantity. But the fact that Hazelmeyer, even given the noisy aesthetic that AMREP went for, right? Amphetamine Reptile Records. You know, signing cows is not something normal a normal person would do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, does that make sense what I'm saying there? Without a doubt. Yeah, he saw it. He saw the genius. Yeah, well, and again, I don't know that I'd use the word genius. Uh, but <laughs> well, <laughs> nothing not, personal. Not, not, no, not, no, I, well, I, I thought Shannon was a genius front man without a doubt. Well, there's no question that he was fearless, right? And I do love that about a front man. I love the fearlessness. The, I, I'm telling you, the time I saw him in that clear cowboy apron and little else blowing on that beat up ass bugle that he loved to play um I, I i have to admit i've never seen anything like it before there was a fearlessness and a bravery and an intensity and i i'll tell you what i mean i came back i probably saw cows eight nine times back in those years and um i love it so what happens how do you get from cows to like hell okay well let's see so cows, I, mean, I know that's a longer well, story <laughs> than probably a whole podcast <laughs> but you, give give me the give me the short version short of that version, story. well short version is uh, so i did two albums with cows mm-hmm. two full lengths then we recorded and toured europe a couple times or actually one time the last recording i did with those guys was recording with uh john peel session for the bbc studios and so that's really cool that all right was, that, that's okay i'm sorry I, I moved way too fast forward first of all how did european audiences in general i mean because we're talking are we talking late 80s are we into the early 90s already yep so it was the first amrep tour and it's called the amrep introductory tour and it was us and then a band that i later played with the god bullies so both bands stuffed in a little 15 passenger mm. van and so you're playing both sets? No, no, no. At the time, I wasn't. I was just in the drummer and the, the cows. Got it. And then, uh, but but so we would flip flop, and we played Yugoslavia. I mean, we played some. I mean, I could another time we'll tell those all those stories. But <laughs> but, but I mean, was the reception good? Did oh, people no, inc- like how chaos chaotic it was? No, no, it was incredible. Yeah, and and then each night it was just fun because it was such a great healthy competition with the between guys, the God Bullies and Cows, because we were the pioneer bands of uh, Amrep, and each band like. Like we really played out of really two good live bands and we would like play off of each other and each night you know just kind of i want not to say it's a competition but a healthy competition and right. s- in some cities seem to like 
you know, get Shannon a little <laughs> bit more, whereas other cities might appreciate Mike Hart a little more. Right. And so, yes, it, long answer is yes, they, they, they really got it. Were there any cities where they clearly didn't get it and you were being pelted by batteries and coins, kroner, something? No, we seem to be appreciated more outside of Minneapolis and and, and, and then especially in Europe than uh, kroners. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't help uh, myself. Sorry, sorry. Little, my mind's a little slow here. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, we were appreciated more outside of Minneapolis. Like Minneapolis, like the little music scene like this, but it was a real love-hate relationship, I think, at first, you know, and then I mean, it wasn't like all of a sudden we would never get recognized as city pages or anything like that, but then right. all of a sudden village voices talking about us, you know, or whatever, a picture in there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there was no, I, I mean, yeah, early, because I did all the early tours, and so we were, it wasn't, you know, we were the, laying down the groundwork then. And so the, some of the, you know, it wasn't like we were playing, instantly playing the big, huge rooms, you know. And so, yeah, we, without a doubt, would clear out some people, but then the people that would stay were just like, oh, my God. And the people that would stay would be usually, like, badass musicians that we would connect with like in LA, like we'd played at the, our first ever show there with cows and it would be uh, uh, like Donita from L7, the singer. And then it ended up, we'd all sleep over at her house, you know, stay at her house from every time we'd go there. Um, you know, so it'd be musicians would get it. And then other musicians wouldn't get it, you know, like, and then cows are just like an, and you had to be in, it's a cow therapy, you know, it's like you had, to, <laughs> you, had, you had to be in the mood for it, you know? Right. And so, I mean, some days like you're talking about dub earlier, dub music and all oh, that's the beautiful thing about music is that certain different types of music can really be good, you know, and, and affect where you are in a day or where you are in your life or what's going on. And even within the day, and, but then, but the thing about cows is like, when you need that, go say cow therapy again, it's really, really, truly medicinal. But then conversely, if it's, you know, you're not, not, not there, it's like, okay, I don't get it today. What was your favorite city to play in in Europe? In, in general? You mean yeah. Or? Yeah. In general, was oh, there something, something like a club or particular experience there where you were like, holy shit, this is incredible. Well, yeah, they were, I mean, they were all really, really, really good. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I said Yugoslavia earlier. That that was really kind of a really cool because it was just before the Civil War. Mm. And uh, and it was really cool, like, you know, like we're driving into the country and then all of a sudden, like, you know, it goes it goes from highway to like dirt roads and and wagons with horses and stuff. And, are, are there like checkpoints well, and things well, like that? I'll talk about that when we played in uh, Berlin. But uh, but when we got to uh, uh, Yugoslavia, you know, we get there and like there's Tito is still the dictator there. And so there's like <laughs> we, we're sitting there and there's like pictures of Tito on the on the you know wall while we're, while we're having dinner and that uh, waiters were like when we're sitting in the restaurant we're so nervous and one guy like spilled on I was sitting next to Shannon and the guy spilled on <laughs> Shannon's lap and then all of us like water or something and then all of a sudden he takes his napkin and he starts patting his, his crotch <laughs> and then the look Shannon gave me was just so funny just kind of that guy was so embarrassed but the cool just going back to the Yugoslavia it was so, so cool like this uh this uh uh teacher like drove like six or eight hours and he brought his brought his uh, kids wow. like his class to the to the show how cool and, is and that it was, because they had they got our record somehow and and like you know and then he's like asking us about the lyrics like i woke up on out on the lawn she went in and she was gone you know like, <laughs> like, like asking us all these like you know, and we're just sitting there just like talking to you. it was really really cool so i mean that that's a highlight you know and but i mean i mean then i mean then later on after, after that tour kind of kind of broke both bands up because i ended up leaving the cows after that because it was like both bands in a uh in a van like smoking cigarettes no room to you know drive oh, it was brutal i'll bet brutal i'll bet but uh but you know 
ended up their their drummer for the God Bullies ended up leaving and uh, and then I they called me up and said, "Hey Tony, can you uh, you want to come play with us?" Uh, and my first rehearsal was since I knew him so well. My first rehearsal was a live performance in Milwaukee, <laughs> and my second rehearsal was and then ended wow. up playing with those guys for a couple of years and doing a bunch of recordings with them too. Favorite record favorite concert with those guys probably was either ecstasy in berlin or at, mm. at the venue in london it's called the venue or else God, I'm, I'm totally brain farting the name uh in in rotterdam or in, uh amsterdam there is a, a, a club there that's a converted church that i'll remember here in a uh, second. not the milkweg um i'll get i'll get it in a second that's here. fine it's not but, important but that that those clubs were just really you know really really when really they fun. totally get it when well, you can just tell that they get it and, but that tour was a little different because that was called the uh ugly american overkill tour so that was <laughs> and so that was so with that that was five amrit bands and so that was god bullies headlining it was helmet in their heyday right wow. when strap it on came on and we had wow. to go every night after after those guys hmm. and then the band uh surgery from new york city yeah. and then tar from chicago and then halo of flies would open it and so all of us that's were a on, heavy night man well, so, so all of us were <laughs> all of us were on a judas priest double decker tour bus wow. <laughs> so, so li- and so it was a little bit better than being you know 11 people in a yeah. Ten person van, or but whatever. it's still however many people in a double double decker bus. I mean, there had to be twenty five of you in that bus. Oh yeah, but we each at least had our own bunks and right, our own. Okay. And, and then there was a, a lounge lounge up back and a lounge up up top. Okay. And so there's little hang areas, if right. you will. And the cool thing with that tour is like my, that was my first, I kind of first and only bus tour. But it was like neat because you would just after you done, you'd go to sleep and then you would wake up plugged in to the club the next day, and so you just could go walk around and do stuff. Right. You know? Right. Great. And uh, but. Uh, that that was a really 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 cool tour, and, mm. and having to have to go on every night after Helmet when they were when they were just about to get signed, and they were just the most incredible machine. So, like that kind of pressure right there, when we talk about Page and Helmet at the peak of their considerable powers, or at least like this brand new newfound popularity. When somebody comes out and absolutely sledgehammers the audience in the face, and you're like, "Shit, we still have to go to work after this." Does that? Does it deflate you? Does it propel you to be like, nope, I'm going to go out there and rock the shit out of these fuck faces? I, well, it depends what kind of product you're playing with. And luckily, I was into you know pretty good bands, and right. and that and that's I was saying the God Willies are, are an incredible live band, and and we were able to pull it off every night. Just following Helmet sounds like work. Yeah, well, I mean, no, it was, but but it's inspirational, right? You're like, okay, we we can't take tonight off. We can't just do okay tonight. We have to melt faces. The whole time, every time. Exactly. Oh, amazing. Dennis Miller was always famous for firing the warm-up comedians if they were too good. <laughs> he would. He'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, like, you're making... I can't follow that. I can't follow... He did. He fired a few guys, and I met one of them at one point, but he's like, you're done. <laughs> like, you need to get the fuck out of here. So we go from this, and then you, along with your brother, decide to form a band called Like Hell. And now we've gone long enough again that we have to hear a song, uh, if that's okay with you. By all means. Uh, and then we'll talk more about the history of Like Hell. Well, in some words, the unbelievable, true, and amazingly accurate story behind Rock's most legendary supergroup, Like Hell, uh, as it says right here on the front of the DVD, uh, which was narrated by somebody somewhere between Sir Lawrence Olivier and uh, Kermit the Frog. He's got the gift. Um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Like, I want to I dig in like what it was like being with John Peel, but we have to save that for next time. 
time. You will come back again, won't you? I'd love to. All right, we're not done yet, but there's just, there are so many things I feel like we're skating over the top of, but we also have to remember the audience, and the audience likes to hear music, and I like to hear music as well. Like Hell, tell me about this song, and then we're going to talk about your band on the far side. All right, so we're playing uh, Doom, That Sense of Impending Doom, and this is off our most recent record that we did uh, still a while ago, but it's called Famous Orgies, and uh, we actually did a video for it, and uh, yeah, it was fun. It was our first, kind of our most produced album that we had done uh, to date. It was something where we actually did pre-production and all that stuff. Wait, like like planning and calling people (laughs) and managing things (laughs) and getting things set up? As opposed to doing it in the basement of lizards and mice, like how we did Daddy Has a Tail or whatever. (laughs) And so, yeah, no, it's exactly, it was, it was, it was fun to try it this way. It's fun playing, doing it live as well. And I think there's something cool about trying to capture that, but, uh, you know, there's the art of making an album too. And, you know, and, and then also sometimes I say, well, you want to make sure that you can replicate it. It's like, well, Hey, let's make a really badass sounding record. And then let me worry about replicating it and, you know, raising to the rising to the occasion when we play live or whatever.
Like Hell, off Famous Orgies, a song called Sense of Impending Doom. And we'll talk more to Tony Oliveri in a mere moment here. But first, Sean Bernard. Hey. Hi. <laughs> Things are starting to pick up in the real estate world. Uh, we kind of got out of that fr- that freaking big chill where it was 160 below zero. And-, and does that really wipe the notion of moving or change from people's mind? No, because people start, you know, it's not like buying a car or some other impulse buy. People do plan out their moves most of the time unless they're going through a really nasty, quick divorce where somebody, you know, cheated on somebody else with a couple other people. Wow. Sorry, I'm just I, I, I didn't. I didn't realize that Realty had a, such a dark, dark side house. to it. No, it is kind of funny sometimes. That, and Tony can tell you, I, I guess I'll mention he's in real estate as well. That's fine, right? We don't care. If you, if you can't go with me, go with a good guy like Tony. Well, okay, that part's yeah. fine. I, I feel like we're burying the lead here. I would yeah. like to hear more about some of the darker edges No, we're not going to talk about that right now, but I just thought you I'd bring it up. it up. Stuff happens sometimes where people need to move. A lot of times it's that they're going to downsize, they're going to upsize, they're getting divorced, they're getting married. I, in fact, I just took a, a listener of the show and his girlfriend to their first showing the other night. And they're looking at buying this house together. And then sure enough, later that night, I look on their Facebook and they're engaged. So that was really cool. That's awesome. So that's a big reason why people uh, move. And Tony can tell you the same thing. But if you know somebody who's looking to buy or sell, even if it's not you, have them call me at 612-859-2594. That number is also text worthy. Have you ever gone to a house that's going to be put up for sale that... um you're like, this isn't ready because you found something weird there? Yeah, I, I have. I have. I, I've been to houses where they just did not bother to clean. Oh. I've had, I, I, I can say this on the show. I wouldn't put this on my social media. I just went to a showing uh, about two weeks ago where they didn't flush the toilet. <laughs> like, I'm sure Tony's seen Who that. doesn't flush the toilet? I don't know, but I, I almost saw showing? You know what I think it was? I think it was the daughter who was living at her parents' place. The parents had moved on, and she really did not want to move out of the house. So you see just... And so she left a warship she left in the a, toilet bowl. She, she did in, indeed, but uh, it was really frightening. And, and again, if we were a decent, respectable show, I would never talk about this stuff. <laughs> But I want our I want our listeners to know that I am just a casual guy who's not a money pig like some realtors are, and I'm guessing Tony knows some too. That for me, I just I want to help people do this the right way, right. and that means that sometimes you say, "Flush your damn toilet." Yes, exactly right. Or as I just told this nice couple, do not max yourself out for your budget on a house. No, do not go with what your mortgage guy says is your absolute max because stuff happens to old houses. You need to have some money in the bank. You need to have a nest egg in case things happen. And you don't always hear that from realtors. So, you know, go with somebody who's decent, who's a good human being and will take care of you and take care of your family members. There's also a lot of, a lot of my friends, their, their folks are at that age where they're downsizing or maybe going to the nursing home. And so I've been working on a lot of those projects. I've got a listing coming up next month where that's, we've been working on the house for the last year. Well, and I know thing, things are good right now, but my wife and I, we sold our first home and bought our next home mm-hmm. at the peak of the market in the early 2000s, and we bought at the very top of our range, and immediately, as soon as the market fell through a couple of years later, we found ourselves with a house that was valued $70,000 less than we paid for it. I did something similar where I was making great money. I was working two jobs about 80 hours a week and bought at the top, and uh, the housing market crashed and lost $180,000 on a home, so 
That's so, a lot of money. It is. Yeah. yeah it, it hurt. So don't do that. Don't do that. You Be can, smart. You can still get a good home. Yeah, get a get a good home. Get something that's reasonable, and, and it's your decision. I always say that to people. It's not my decision. It's your decision. But my suggestion is keep a little bit of money in the bank in case things go wrong or get a warranty or whatever you need, you need to do. No reason in this day and age to spend more than like 2.4 mil on your new that's home. That's what I always say. Nothing less than 2 mil or you're not going with Sean B. <sighs> oh, good old Sean B. I'm glad that he's here. I'm glad that everyone is here. It's episode 137 of The Brian Oak Show. And Tony Oliveri is here. Now, Tony, your brother Nick is named Nick Oliveri. And we are not going to get too far ahead of ourselves. But what's weird about that is there's another Nick Oliveri who's also in a very popular band called Queens of the Stone Age, uh, or was, rather, in Queens of the Stone Age, uh, around the same time that Like Hell was at their zenith as well. And um, that's weird. That could be very confusing, especially sort of in the dawn of the internet age, right? Like the early 2000s is when things, in late 90s, early 2000s is when, like, oh, I can look everything up on the internet. That's a confusing thing. But then it turns out they know each other, and you end up playing with that band. Tell me how you and your brother decide to start Like Hell. Okay, how did we start Like Hell? Well, basically, I was playing uh, with uh, uh, Matt Boakley and uh, and Frank. Actually, not, Matt Frank wasn't in the band yet. We were just we we had a band we were going to be called Dead Rock Star. Kurt Cobain. Just and people were sick of coke. Uh, sick of. Uh, uh, rock stars dying and stuff like that. So we were just me called Dead Rock Star. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we got Nick, so Frankie Thorpe, who was a drummer in Roy G. Biv. Uh, he switched over to bass. And then my brother Nick came and started singing. And uh, and then we went into the studio to record our first EP with Tim Mack at Amrep. And, uh, you know, he, he's saying, well, what, you know, you guys going to, what are you guys going to be called? And we go, Dead Rock Star. He goes, you're not Dead Rock Star. He goes, yes, we are. He goes, like hell you are. And we go, okay, like hell. And so he wrote like hell. On the, was it uh, really that simple? I that think, easy? I, I think that's almost <laughs> how it went. And then, so and then we just said, okay, like hell with one word. And there we are. Wow. Because uh, So uh, this is relatively early in my radio career. I get fired from my first ever radio job. And I'm like, well, I'll never work again. I start working at the edge. And they hire me to do both the, well weekends and fill in stuff. But my other two main responsibilities are the local music show and the under the edge indie music show. And for the local music show, I was just getting inundated with stuff in the late 90s. And I remember getting, I, I think it was Snowball's Chance was the first thing i ever got from you guys is that where some devil is from or that devil yep. that devil yep. yeah exactly and i remember hearing that song and i'm like oh and i think i played it every week for about three months i was i was in, infatuated with that song and then i went to see you guys a few times and this was this was a good time for like hell right i mean like so you're on amrep What's it like? I mean, how often are you playing? Are you touring? What's what's life in Like Hell like? Okay, so we Like Hell was not on AMRAP. We just recorded oh. there. Uh, so we self-released our first EP, which is uh, just Like Hell, uh, Sacred Crown, I guess is what we called it. And then we signed with uh, Lori Barbero's label, uh, Spanish Fly, which oh, was yeah. a, a subsidiary of, uh, say that's it, three times fast, <laughs> a subsidiary of uh, Pintone Records. And so uh, they put out our first record, um, Love American Style, and then the record you're talking about is, was our second full length on uh, uh, on Spanish Fly. Okay, very good. And you're doing that. So what what is life like? I mean, like, so you're recording these things, you're playing around town. Is the reception good? Are you touring all over the place? Are you mainly playing locally? What What is life like 
for like hell in the second half of the 90s. No, so we, well, so yeah, we, from the minute we started, we just hit the road running because we knew that's what we had to do. And just playing in town isn't, you know, going to do it. We got to like go and, and so some, some bands have a theory where, you know, they'll just go and like nail a region and keep nailing a city over and over until you really build up a following, which is probably a little bit smarter than the way we did it. Cause what we just would tour around the country and play every, in every city and we'd have, you know, 25 to a hundred people come, you know, but at least they, we had, they were small and loyal following, but it was still fun. And then we'd end up getting, you know, chances to open up for people and get on bigger tours and stuff like that. Well, and so what I like about that is, you know, touring everywhere and the whole DIY thing. I mean, you go back 10, 15 years before there wasn't really an underground network, you know? And so when you talk about the Minneapolis music scene of the 80s, you know, SST Records and all these things where people were basically making it up as they went along and were calling these places in the early 80s that weren't necessarily punk rock clubs or weirdo alt-rock clubs, but they would book a band and, you know, you kind of had to make that. So you, having done the time you'd done in the Cows and God Bullies, were you kind of utilizing that same template that you had utilized before? Yeah, well, we we had our manager that you knew, Dave Peel, who was our booking agent, and so mm. he, of a tough guy booking and so Dave, like, really did Dave it. Peel of Grumpy's fame, yeah, who's now yeah. Dave Flint? Yep, yep, oh. exactly. So what? Be- really? So, so before he was all that, he <laughs> uh, he was uh, the owner of Tough Guy Booking, and they were out of uh, Twin Tone Records. And so he just, he took us under his wing and just, like, just did a badass job. Just, like, and a good badass. Like, he was, he just really kicked butt majorly he's one of my favorite people on the planet so this is is, wild i didn't know this part of the story and you know i know today we're recording it but uh today's his birthday actually march 4th he shares a birthday with my brother nick and so and david livingstone the guitar player from the god bullies well happy birthday everybody yeah exactly (laughs) that's crazy but doing that diy thing you're talking about it's like so yeah he, he would we would build a tour around like so opening for motorhead at the viper room that would be like the big thing you know and then all of a sudden you would you know, do filler stuff like that. Our first show whoa, ever. Whoa, 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 whoa. Filler stuff. Are you telling me that you've opened up for Motorhead at the Viper Room? That, yeah, that was really cool. That, I, really? It sounds better than really cool. <laughs> it was this thing called the F Music Festival, and there's so much to say about it, but I'll be real quick. They, uh, so, yeah, Take we, your time. Take your time. Well, we, we got time. We were opening for Motorhead, and then that, we, so we drive and we're playing shows all the way there. Morning of the show, Motorhead cancels because an ugly kid Joe Ouch. is oh the we were, we were just like everything <laughs> oh, about it was, was just like wah, 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 wah. we were so bummed sad trombones because because uh, Motorhead wanted to add more PA into a club that was the size of the Uptown or smaller oh, right, you know right and so we were just like oh man <sighs> but as it turned out they ended up uh, playing the doing the show anyways oh good. And, but what was really cool about that show is uh, so you always don't hope that there's people in the crowd and so that night. Um, we, uh, ended up playing and finished the tour, came home. And then all of a sudden Paul Stark, the owner of Twin Tones said, yeah, I guess, uh, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses is a big fan of yours. He, he went to a record store in uh, Seattle and bought your whole catalog. And I was just kind of like, yeah, right. Sure. Cool. <laughs> you know, whatever. But sure enough, when we later went back to LA years later and, and recorded it and with Matt Sorum, the old drummer from, uh, Guns N' Roses, Velvet Revolver and the Cult. Uh, we were recording at his home studio and just hanging out and like, and then all of a sudden, you know, just Duff McKagan walks in, you know, Slash just walks in, just like buddies here or whatever. And Duff goes, Duff like, oh, like hell, you know, Happy Seeds is my wife's favorite song of yours. And I'm all like, time out, Mr. Welcome to the Jungle you know, <laughs> right, right. and stuff. And so... 
Well, I mean, you, That's crazy. So you, you played with and around and been affiliated with so many incredible bands. And I think that brings us naturally to the DVD I hold down in my hands, which is called Like Hell, the unbelievably true and amazingly accurate story behind rock's most legendary supergroup, which ends up becoming not just sort of a spinal tapish mockumentary of the ascendancy and descendancy and ascendancy and descendancy <laughs> of like hell, but also features incredible cameos from a tremendous number of people, not the least of which is yours truly. At some point, you reached out to me and asked me if I would be willing to narrate this particular um, DVD and the story of like hell's unlikely journey. And I, without having any idea what I was getting into, said yes. What do you think about the band Like Hell? Like who? 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 This is Like Hell, the unbelievably true and amazingly accurate story behind rock's most legendary supergroup. Had your testes not dropped yet when you... Uh, it's the internet, okay? The internet makes everyone sound 15 years younger than they actually are, all right? Also, I hadn't had quite the number of cigarettes and alcohol oh, that's at what it that was. point there you go. that I've had at this There's point in truth. my life. And um, that's the truncated version right there. There's a longer version of the intro, <laughs> but there's also the DVD version of the movie, which goes on to much greater length. And you can't maybe make it out in that particular intro right there, but the cameos feature... I mean, I saw Slash, I saw Duff, I saw Josh Ami. I'm not sure who else, everybody else I saw was oh, uh, NATO. Nash from Nash. Urge Overkill, yeah. Yeah, from Urge Overkill. Um, I mean, you making the rounds, it's weird because, you know, so many bands try hard and work really hard, and some get to hang out with the cool people, and others are just continually pushed or relegated to the second tier. It must have felt pretty good to be touring around and meeting friends and making friends with all these people, right? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool. I think what, going back to what we were talking about with the cows is like, like Hell's theory too was going out there and kind of not really get caring, you know, right. and going out, we're doing, we're doing our thing where this is, we're, you know, screw you guys. This is us. Walk if you want to walk. Otherwise, if you dig it, you dig it. And luckily, you know, a lot, a lot of these people dug it and became friends and fans of the band. And so that's how we kind of connected with them. That's fantastic. So is this something that's still available to the general public? Like if somebody's like, well, like hell, maybe I, I missed them the first time around. I don't really know a lot about them. I'd like to see that DVD. I'd like to hear these CDs. Are these things that are actually still available to the general public anywhere? I think you can on the Internet for sure. Um, like it was on Netflix, Netflix for a while when they were doing the, the DVD delivery days. But I don't know if they're doing that. I don't know how it got on the DVD, DVD delivery, but not on the uh the streaming for right. I, I don't know how I don't know if our distributor made it that way or whatever, but in, so you you can if if they still anybody still does that, that Netflix delivery they will do that. Uh, show of hands, who still gets DVDs sent to their house? Do you really? You do? I just don't know how to cancel it. I've oh. gone on their website like eight <laughs> times. I don't know how to cancel. It's like what about a, your publisher's clearinghouse? It, <laughs> <you're right here. laughs> Columbia clearinghouse. Yeah, Columbia. CDs. That's what it was. Fifteen DVDs. Yeah, exactly. Eight of them for one cent. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm trying to figure out how to make Netflix stop sending me DVDs, <laughs> and I can't figure it out. 
That's not funny. It's sad. It's, it's so sad. you, though. It's, it's so very, you. <laughs> it's very me, unfortunately. All right. So there's not like a destination, like a website where people can go and get these things. No, not well. I, I don't think so. I guess I have to. I haven't looked at the Lake Hell store for a long time. But okay, obviously, well, if anybody... Bandcamp, anything like that, <laughs> Spotify. No, we've been pretty lazy. I, I think. I think we're on Pandora, and I think we're we have our own channel there, and. It's, to be honest, we've just been kind of laying low for a little while, but, uh, you know, so I haven't really been thinking too much about it, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, if anybody really, really, really cares, reach out to me and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll dig one up for you. Tony Oliveri is our guest and do reach out to him because all these things are worthwhile. So I'm actually excited. You brought me a copy of famous orgies. This is the only one of yours I don't have, and I've never had a chance to spend any time with it. And it looks like there's a long line of interesting people looking to get into this famous orgy right here. Exactly. Well, that was my vision with it was, uh, I just I used to bartend at the uh, Urban Wildlife downtown, mm-hmm. and so kind of knew a lot of people. And when I put the, uh, you know, what we were doing, you know, and putting it all together, uh, I had this vision in my eye, my head with as far as like putting all these people standing in line in different costumes to go into a famous orgy. And so that was kind of the, the thought behind the artwork and all that stuff. In your life as a rock star, and this is the only time I'm going to ask you to bear your soul, did you ever find yourself at a famous orgy? I can neither confirm nor deny any such. Uh... Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. Well, uh, one day in the future, we'll dig and we'll get to the bottom of it, Tony. If you're not willing to be honest, then we're going to have to go investigative journalist on this at some point. Oh, right? boy. Uh-oh. No, no, actually, I would, I, it was no, no famous orgies, nothing crazy like that. But uh, but it, living on the road was fun. And actually, I met my wife on the road. So that was a beautiful thing. And you met her north of the border, yeah? Yep, yep. We were on tour in uh, Canada, and there was a blizzard following us around, and we were up in, uh, <laughs> in, in literally, we were on tour with Speed, REO Speed Dealer from Dallas, Texas, and they'd never been in snow before. And uh, literally every town we went to, it would be a, <laughs> a three-foot storm. And so Toronto, Ottawa, every city, Montreal, wow. Quebec. And so we played in Quebec City, and uh, there was maybe 10 people there. And after the show, we went and uh, sat in this little pub, and uh, I sat and talked French with Melissa, and it was like the first time that I ever, you know, I mean, that, that we ever talked, and right. and uh, I just kind of always wondered why did I ever learn French? Well, it was so I could sit and talk French with her that night. That's crazy. And we didn't smooch or do anything like that. We just we talked, and then <laughs> and then we went on, you know, kept going on tour, and then we ended up that's our first Queens tour after that. I send her a letter saying, yeah, we're going on tour. It was nice meeting you. We're going on a tour with some band called Queens of the Stone Age. I've never heard of them, but you know, let's stay in touch. And she wrote me a letter, but I never got the letter. Seven wow. years, seven years later, she found my letter. Goes, oh, that guy was pretty cool, and she sent an email or not email. It was a instant message or whatever it was to our Facebook or not Facebook, whatever MySpace or wherever it was right. at the yeah. time, and said, I don't know if you're, you know you remember me. We met back in nineteen ninety nine. I go, I totally remember you. Thanks for writing back. And so we start instant messaging. We start talking eight hours a day, and like we, ten wow. days into it, we knew we were going to get married. So then she came and stayed for two weeks. You know, see how the smooching was. Smooching was great. We had a great time. <laughs> then she came for two months, and we just wanted to make sure we weren't going to get infatuated, you know, that we weren't going to get sick of each other. Right. This time, her dad, who worked for the Canadian government, came down and meet me and, you know, met my parent, my parents and everything. And, and then we ended up, you know, she sold her house in Montreal, and I sold my uh, condo in uh, East Lake of the Isles, and we uh, bought our current house. And what? He, and you're still together today? We are. Kids the whole bit. Yep. Luca Bruno Oliveri, our little 12-year-old, is this amazing son. And yeah, it, but yeah, Melissa, I mean, that's another thing. She she is just an amazing artist, amazing singer, songwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does her own podcast. Uh, she, writes, 
she's writing stories, What's novels. What's the name of her podcast in case anybody that's listening oh wants to hear it? Oh, my God. I wrote it down and I forgot to... Uh, I'll, I'll let you if guys know. If people look up Melissa Oliveri, they'll find yeah, it. Yeah, it's uh, the Skylark Bell, I think. Or, cool. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. We'll see if we can find it. We'll try to link to it or something. Cool. Let's no, try it's, to keep that under our hats, okay? That's all you <laughs> remember is what podcast. <laughs> it's all good. No. Podcast pay. Yeah, well, she, she's wonderful. And you were great for coming by. But again... Every time you brought up another story, I had 15 more questions, and we just we can't make this a four-hour podcast. So we're going to wrap this one up, all right, because we have another one we have to record today. Tony Oliveri, uh, before we go, I want to thank Smart Start MN. I want to thank AudioQuip, without whom we don't mm-hmm. have the equipment to record this. I want to thank Sean Bernard. Thank, thank you, you. Sean. A reminder with AudioQuip, if you are planning events because people are starting to plan them, yep. consider AudioQuip. They've got good equipment and... Again, something that Sean and I agreed on from day one is we weren't going to work with jerks. We just, mm-hmm. we, we cannot work with people who we don't like. You know, sometimes business requires you to bend your standards a little bit, but we decided early on we're not working with anybody who gives you that ooky feeling in your stomach like this doesn't feel right. Audio Equip, Nate and his entire crew are fantastic. So please, if you need audio equipment, consider them because they are great at what they do. Tony, before we say goodbye, as I mentioned earlier, your brother Nick from Like Hell. There's another Nick Oliveri who is no longer in Queens of the Stone age but was for a long time and that led to you two tying up with queens of the stone age now as sean will attest and anybody who's ever followed me on social media (laughs) i've got a little bit of a mm, how you say obsession Obsession. with queens of the stone age and have for a very very long time and so you're telling me that the two nick oliveris have met one another well so we how we met was so that right after that story i told about meeting melissa Mm -hmm. we literally just finished that east coast tour with with uh, our speed dealer came back to minneapolis for like a week or whatever. That's when I wrote the letter. And then Queens were coming through. So that was their last ever van tour. And so they came, they came through and they played the seventh street entry. And so, oh. and then, and then we were, we did like hell did well in Western Canada. So that our Canadian booking agent put us on tour with the Queens. And so we were in the basement of the entry, you know, cause the next day we were going to play you know, the, the next day of their tour in Winnipeg. And uh, we ended up you know, hey, how you doing? We just met, introduced, we're going to be on tour with you guys, blah, 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 blah. And then Nick Oliver, and then they were just like telling each other stories about, okay, what cities to watch out for, for warrants or whatnot. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so it was just fun. We hit it off instantly. And then the next day we played, it was the first time they ever saw us, and we played at the Pyramid in uh, in Winnipeg. And it was this packed, big radio show live on the radio and everything. And, and we just played, and we just slayed it. And Josh and, and Nick were standing front row with their mouths just down, going, Oh my God, like they were just so into it. And like, it was just really, really cool. And like, we didn't realize how badass they were at the time. And, uh, and so we ended up doing that tour with them. And then, uh, and so Nick and Nick knew each other, obviously. And then, then Josh asked us, Hey, when, when are you going to come out and record? I want to come, you guys come out to the desert. And, uh, so we ended up doing, uh, on the inside in the middle of a summer in Joshua tree or in uh, Palm Springs or Palm desert. Right. And it was like 118 degrees and we're recording at monkey studios, the same studio they did their first record in, which was an old porno studio. Like they film pornos there. So it was just like this really sleazy (laughs) rock sex vibe and we're sleeping there, staying there, you know, it's just, it was really cool. And, uh, but that's how we ended up like hooking up with those guys. And, and then he put put our records out. I would expect nothing 
less from that particular story right there. I absolutely love that. You know, when you revere someone, too, I'm always leery about meeting my heroes or my rock stars. The one time I, I was able to interview Josh Ami, uh, it was about 20 minutes long, and he was even better than I expected. Love that dude. Love his creativity. Love his honesty. Love his fearlessness when it comes to rock and roll should be rock and roll. There should be some grit. There should be some grime. There should be some willingness to fail, and there should be some sexy good times. I, I'm, I'm just a huge fan. So we picked this particular song by Queens, not just because of its lascivious feel-good nature, but because... Because your brother actually performs on this one? Yep. So Josh asked, you know, after the tour, he asked Nick uh, to uh, be, do a desert session. So, so he, Nick flew out and did a desert sessions. I can't remember if it was seven. When, so he sang, sings on Polly Wants a Crack Rock and uh, Cold Sore Superstar. And uh, so they did that. And then and then when this record came out, uh, they had Nick, I can't remember how he flew him out or why they wanted him. But uh, actually what it was is so... That same record you were talking about earlier that with that devil, we had a song called My Girlfriend Smokes Crack. Mm-hmm. And they loved that song. Like their girlfriends and wives said, my God, they will not stop singing it. So yeah. <laughs> this, that song, without a doubt, influenced the making of Nicotine Valley and Vicodin Mac- Marijuana. That whatever they say there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Vicodin. Ecstasy and alcohol. There we go. And they, and so, and so, Nick flew out there, our Nick, so Eldorado flew out there. And uh, we go in Queens Nick, and then our Nick is how we do. Got di- it. Differentiate. Got it. And uh, Nick flew out there and sang, and so he did backup vocals with Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Wow. Is, does backups on there too? And are you telling me Rob Halford's also on this song? Oh, yeah, you can hear him. Yeah, that's new information. I was not aware of that. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because you can hear, you can hear, like when you listen to it with headphones, you can. It goes in and out. That's what beauty of Josh's recordings is that it's just it's he cre- likes to go deep. It's creeper, and it's like <laughs> the, the, the more the more you listen to it. All of a sudden, you notice something that you didn't notice. You're like, "How did I miss that? My right. God!" And uh, so, yeah. So, but next time you listen to it, you're going to hear, you know, Rob's voice, and then you'll hear Nick's voice, and it's. I'm going to cool. listen to it right now. Right uh, Tony, thank you very much, man. Thank you so Thanks, much for Tony. having me, John. See you next time. Here we go, a little Queens Cheers. of the Stone Age, as we wrap up episode 137 of the Brian Oak Show. You can see it.